get my kickstand here and get organized. Good morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us. We look a little thinner this morning. I mean, uh, uh, I guess people trying to squeeze the last little bit of summer out and uh, enjoy some of that. A couple things I just wanted to do as we get started. We're going to uh, work on our congregational memory verse together. I just want to keep that before us and in our thoughts. We had a day of fasting and prayer yesterday over relationships in this church for the blessing of our children, the blessing of marriages, and all the situations in life we find ourselves in. I guess about 15 people came to our house, and we spent an hour praying together. It was a great time. And then uh, uh, the Wood family came over after that, and then things really got exciting. So uh, we had a good day yesterday. not recommended, but Alicia and I went on a hot date to break our fast to McDonald's and spent $10.75 and uh, maybe regretted that decision a little bit later. But God is good. Uh, also a reminder, as we, you know, we get busier and things are going on, I just wanted to ask and remind you that if you need something from the church office or from me administratively, not spiritually, come to me about spiritual things or discussions, what like that, but Denise as well. On Sunday mornings, Denise deserves to have uh, time to worship and not be distracted by the things of what goes into keeping this place running. So go ahead and fill out your ideas and your requests on a three by five card, which are in the back, and then you can put those on the box outside her door. So that stuff can kind of remain separate from what we have going on here Sunday mornings. So that's just one little boundary that I'm trying to help us uh, uh, as an office set up so we can function administratively. All right, so we are going to jump in. A couple announcements that I want to add as well. The young adult Bible class is going on upstairs across from the college uh, room. They are doing a series on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I went in there. They let me uh, go up there for a little bit. They didn't try to kick me out. They let me participate. It was good. I think uh, that class would really be a good one to uh, participate in if you're in that demographic and so interested. We had a good number of people come for the care ministry meeting last week in the fellowship hall, and you got an idea about that. I would like you to get in touch with me and let me know how you want to be involved in that and at what level so that we can uh, be move forward with our plans with that. And then we are still working on Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and we'll be doing that through the month. And what I'd like to do with this, instead of having me read it for you every, every week, that you hear, my, you hear my voice so much, and uh, may the Lord give you a special blessing for enduring that particular thing. But I thought it would be good as we memorize... Uh, this verse that I'm going to just start coming out with the microphone and randomly testing you to make sure that you have memorized uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is our first one. So is everyone ready? Brace yourselves. Well, well, I thought in upcoming weeks, I'll give you, I'll give you a little bit more time, but we get to hear the wonderful booming voice of our brother I asked Brett this morning to read our text from Ephesians. 
Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that what you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Sorry. For all our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day the evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray with the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. All right. Thank you, Brett. Good words. Let's keep working on getting those downloaded in our, in our gray matter. All right. Uh, just I'm going to take a minute as well to go over some of the results from our congregational survey that we took in August. If you remember that, we had more than half of the congregation give input and feedback on that. And uh, I even had some stragglers keep coming in. So a couple of the last couple uh, things that were handed to me in the last day or so, or, or this last week, are not even reflected in this number. But we got a, a pretty large sampling, and it showed me some things that I think will be helpful for us. This is kind of a baseline to measure how do we feel like we're doing relationally? What is the general sentiment of the church? Now, it's hard to nail these things down. This is a social science. It's not an exact science. So how well do people in this congregation know you and your life story or faith journey? And so on a scale of 1 to 10, the congregational average was 5.3, which is actually a pretty low score, which tells me there are a lot of you who feel like you're not very well known by those around you here. Or maybe you just have a handful of people who really know what's going on inside, who you can confide with and know the deep things that you're struggling and wrestling with. So I see certain opportunities that are present to us. Uh, do you have a deep sense of belonging to this church body? Uh, 7.6, which is, a, a, I think, a pretty healthy answer. A lot of us feel connected here. And that connection, of course, relates to your level of involvement. Do you have a place where you're using your gifts, where you're plugging in regularly? Uh, if you don't have that, you feel a little bit more adrift. Is this a loving church? And the second kind of follow-up question with that, is this a warm and inviting place? 8.4 is a very high answer. Now, given this is our perception of what we think as a loving church, are we a loving church? This is not the visitor's perception who comes in and has to try to figure out a way to navigate and is this place for me and is this come? This is kind of the way we see ourselves. Uh, so there's still opportunity there. We don't get this perfect is what I'm saying. Do you feel like this is a healthy church where things are generally headed in a positive direction? 
And we do feel, in, in general, a sense of positive inertia. You know, I'm the new, a new minister. We have new deacons doing new things, new ministries going on. We're trying to get real. We're trying to go deeper with our relationships. Sometimes people are a little threatened by that. And there are a lot of people who feel like we're going way too fast with too many things. And there's a lot of people who feel like it's high time and we have not been going fast enough nearly with, with nearly enough things. Do you feel like this church has helped you understand your spiritual gifts and helped connect you to meaningful work where you use your gifts? This is kind of uh, measuring our perception of uh, plugging in and being mentored and discovering how we can be used by the Lord. And there's a lot of opportunity for growth there. If you are in need, do you feel like these, there are people in this, at church with whom you can share your deep concerns? Again, this was a little more polarized in people's responses, where uh, you do feel that a lot, most of you feel that, but it's with a very small group of people select in the church. If you are in need, do you feel like there are people at church with whom you can share your deep concerns? 7.6, pretty good answer. Number seven, are there people at church who you can trust with confession, sharing the highs and lows of your spiritual journey? So then when we shift that question from six to seven, where it's more confessional about your own brokenness or sin, of course, that number goes down then. That's a little more scary to make yourself vulnerable on that level with other people. Number eight, if you were to face some kind of trouble or crisis in your life, I know that my church family would be there for me. A pretty high uh, response to that, 8.3. I think part of that is some of you have been here long enough that you have really seen your church be a family for you. And when you face challenges in your health, challenges in family life, challenges that come from any number of things. You have experienced firsthand how this church family steps up for you. And uh, praise God for that. That's a beautiful thing. That's not to say we don't have work to do and can't get better at this, though. Number nine, I have been discipled or mentored by members of this church who have invested deeply in my life. I, when I say disciple, think apprenticeship. Think kind of a mentoring relationship. So, uh, one a beautiful thing, Dylan, he came back from Round Lake Camp on fire. He wants to help lead songs, and he's, he's got a hand up there. He's kind of a ham, if you haven't noticed. I love it. But he has been like, I want to do this, and I'm going I'm to jump into this, and praise God for that enthusiasm. Well, we have other song leaders that are trying to invest in him and mentor him in that. And what's a beautiful thing? So how are we doing at that? You know, I think this used to happen more in our churches, more organically in the past, and this is something that has been lost in the last 20 years or so, a real sense of mentoring and discipling people into uh, the life of the church and all the call of ministry that we face. Now, there are pockets and exceptions to this. We have a wonderful children's program is one that I think of. Uh, and what we're trying to do with our younger kids, what we're trying to do with those who are in high school. Um, we're trying to build a youth group. You know, We're trying to do this with just a few people and the talents that we have. And then we have young families and the challenges that they face and the assaults that they have just in regard to their schedule and their time. But we have a lot 
of work to do. Mentoring and discipling each other into the fullness of what the Lord desires for us. Do you feel like the leadership of this congregation has guided you well? Uh, very, uh, this was a very polarized question where most people, it was either a 10 or down somewhere lower than a 10, and it averaged out 7.1. So it's kind of a, a breadth that was responded on, on that particular one. Number 11, members of this congregation have visited me at home or out someplace. 5.3, again, this hasn't happened a whole lot, or it's been lost, or people have not been intentional about this. Then would you be open to friends from church visiting you more often? And now this was kind of a, a interesting. There's a, I don't know if it's Northwest culture or some of it is uh, just our home life and situation. It's not very conducive for having people come in. There may be personal reasons. There may be circumstantial reasons for that. But some people felt more strongly, I absolutely do not want people from church in my home, which was a strange thing to me, but something we also need to be aware of. What is behind that and how do we respect that? And yet there are a lot of people that really are open to and desire more in their relationships and will be like, yeah, come over, come visit me, come share your, I'd love for someone to share my life with and whatever. Uh, <coughs> number 13 there. How often have you been invited into other members' homes or out for a meal? We get in our routines, and we get comfortable, and we do that. And we have certain friends at church who we will spend time with. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and make an effort to be with, because we enjoy that, and that happens organically. But a lot of times, there's not been a lot of intentionality that has taken place. And so people can be here for a very long time and never experience a, a, a relationship with someone outside of what happens in their immediate worship context. Outside of regularly scheduled meetings, Sunday morning and Wednesday night times, how often do you interact socially with other church members? This was the lowest answer on the whole entire survey, which means not very often. So what that means, that could mean a number of different things, but it clearly means that we have a lot of social interactions that take place outside of what goes on here in this building, our Sunday morning, Wednesday night kind of uh, meetings. So you have networks of friends, you are doing stuff as a family, that but we're not in each other's lives with the people in this room at a very deep level sometimes. Have you found ways to express hospitality to other members or visitors of this church? Even the feeling of not receiving much hospitality, even we recognize that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people indicated that, you know, I have not made an effort in this. I have not tried to express hospitality to other people. Have you gone to visit other members, visitors, or the sick of this church? Again, there are some people that are highly involved in this, but the vast majority are not doing anything to visit others uh, in, in a time of need. And we do do this in different ways. And there are pockets of, you know, meals being prepared and people getting into each other's lives. But there's this, this indicates to me that there's a whole lot of opportunity that we have there. 
Outside of regular church meetings, what are your other spiritual practices and routines? The two that are mentioned primarily are personal Bible study and prayer. And beyond this, not a whole lot of other spiritual practices were mentioned. Uh, number 18, how much time do you spend in prayer or Bible study every week? Uh, for Monday through Friday, it came to the average is about 20 minutes a day. And the most common answer that I got to this question was simply not enough. Not enough. I have not made this a priority that is a daily discipline. Not enough. And that 20 minutes a day, there's a lot of people who don't do anything, and then there's a lot of people who spend well over an hour every day, so that raised that number up a little bit. Number 19, how are you intentionally investing in helping others in their spiritual journey through a discipling or mentoring relationship? In what ways are you helping others? Now, we're doing this, and we're doing it a lot of different ways. There is a lot of this congregation that are very highly and deeply involved, and there's a lot of people here who don't do much of anything. The majority of our church is not involved in mentoring others at this time. So this is not meant to be a condemnation in any way. And again, this is highly subjective. But maybe this would be a baseline for us. This is where we are at this moment in time. This is what we feel about this. How do we move forward from here? How do we put, how do we put this in practice? How do we put legs on our faith? How do we express in our relationships the convictions that we hold in our hearts? So I think we have some great opportunities coming, and I think the Lord will get us there. So don't let, don't let this discourage you, but think soberly about this, and think soberly about how you are involved in these things on your, in your own personal life as a part of this church body. All right, so we are continuing in our series in John. We are wrapping up. We're finishing chapter 20 today. And the sermon, because of all the other stuff I've been trying to throw in, I've crafted it a little bit shorter for us. And we are just focusing on doubt. If you are a doubter, today is your day. <laughs> and it's the story of Thomas, a discussion about a disciple of Jesus, Thomas, and then his reaction and this other whole dialogue with other disciples as well. And we know about Thomas as, we know him as Doubting Thomas. We all know the story about Doubting Thomas. And we all know, don't be like Doubting Thomas. And we know it's not good. Don't doubt. Don't. And yet, we may or may not recognize that there are a lot of us who struggle with doubts. And it's a sincere struggle. And I think when, when you are faced with something that is impossible, is it not reasonable to ask for answers? To ask for more clarity? Is it not reasonable to seek greater understanding? At the end of the day, our faith is a mystery. But there are steps that can be taken that we don't take a lot of times because we don't, we're not sure what the answer will be or the answer we might get. 
So a lot of times there's a culture in the church where people just do not feel safe to express their doubts. It's not a safe place. We, we, all, know the, we all know the right words to say. We all know the face to present. We, some of us carry these deep doubts and we do not feel safe to be able to express them. And that is a problem for us. We don't honor very well the deep questions that people carry. And when people don't feel empowered to be honest about their struggles, this creates distance. You can only go so deep in your relationships with God or with others when you have feel obliged to wear a certain mask. I believe, I believe, I don't doubt. And that distance that is created in managing that certain kind of image is a barrier to loving God and others well. You see, doubt is not the opposite of faith. You need to hear that. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. And actually being honest about your doubts that you carry and working through them, it can build your faith. It will make your faith stronger. If you care enough to stick around and seek answers, the processes that we go through with uh, working through our doubts are necessary and they are very healthy. So one problem with doubt is when we don't feel safe to express it. Another, another problem with doubt and related to it, many times we bottle up our doubts and we don't express them because we fear that there really is no answer to the questions that I hold. These existential life questions that all Christians are saying this and I don't express those doubts for fear that there is no answer to these questions. Or worse yet, the answer to these questions will be one that I don't like. And so I leave those questions unanswered. I tuck them away in their own little category. And then this is complicated because of the culture we live in. We live in a culture of skepticism. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's possible, it's possible that someone could be very foolish for the most part in the way that they live their life. But when you express doubt or skepticism or cynicism or criticism, people treat you suddenly like a genius. This means that there is, in this culture, social validation for the person who is a doubter. This is the posture that is most praised a lot of times. The American way is to sit back with arms crossed and jaw set and just be like, I don't believe you and convince me. And people are like that with faith. We, I, I mean, this is reflected in the way we are advertised to. How, how this product is going to make my life better. And you just have to, and we know we're being lied to. And so I think some of this stubborn kind of doubt that we have, this is what's taking place with Thomas now in our text. As we will read in just a second, he is digging in his heels and he is refusing the universal eyewitness of all of his co-workers and all the other disciples. So it says this, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. That's not just, I don't think so. Are you sure? I mean, this is like no way. Thomas, nicknamed Didymus, which means the twin, had spent three years witnessing Jesus do the impossible. But like the rest of the disciples, he didn't understand the cryptic sayings of his rabbi concerning death and then resurrection. In Thomas's mind, when compared to all the miracles that he witnessed, walking on water, the feeding of 5,000, calming storms, all of these amazing things, coming back from coming back to life after death. And Thomas's mind is a whole other thing. It is utterly impossible to believe that. And so he forcefully rejects the testimony of the other disciples. Uh, another thing let me say about doubt. Uh, this, is, this is important to remember about doubt. When people express doubt, there's usually a bigger story behind it. There's a bigger story that's being told by our doubt. People use doubt as a shield or a smoke, a smoke screen. Um, the reason or the public image presented to others that, that is used to hide something that's less intellectual and very, more, very much more personal and painful a lot of times. We put the doubt up here and we use it as a shield, but it's a bluff. In the study of logic, if you've ever had a class in logic in university, a lot of times doubt can be used as kind of a red herring argument or a straw man argument. That means you send people on the wrong trail or you build this false thing up and you let people box against the smoke or the shadow, so to speak. But where you are and where your real heart is, it's removed from that. We use doubt that way all the time. We don't know exactly what the story is behind Thomas's doubt. But when the other disciples unanimously announce to him that we've seen the Lord, Thomas seems cut off from them, doesn't he? He seems almost angry with them. Thomas has walled himself off from the other disciples. And consequently, he's walled himself off against God. This cannot be true. This cannot be true. And so Thomas, in his own way, he is isolated. He's in a lonely place. Perhaps he's jealous. Perhaps he's hurt. Because the other disciples have obviously had this amazing experience that he misses out on it completely. Surely there was a question in them, why is this for them and not for me? I'm one of them. Why do they get to experience this and not me? There's a story. There's a story behind his doubt. 
he did not get to be a part of something amazing that his group experienced. You know, a problem with, with building up our, our walls, though, and digging our hills in, I do not, I will not believe, is the walls that we build and the defenses that we have, they're, they're okay for keeping the church out and, and church people at arm's length. But our defenses, the defenses around our own hearts, are not very effective at keeping God out in the end. Praise God for that. It's a wonderful gift for us. So we are being told, about to be told a second time in John that Jesus appears to the disciples behind locked doors. The disciples were, were there without Thomas and they were behind locked doors and Jesus shows up in their midst. And now a second time, Thomas is there this time, and they're behind locked doors, and Jesus appears again. In the hidden music of John's gospel, don't miss the symbolism of our Lord who appears behind our locked doors, our Lord who appears behind the defenses and the doubts that we erect as a defense mechanism. C.S. Lewis who in his own life started as a committed and thoughtful and deep-thinking, highly educated atheist. He became one of the world's most beloved Christian apologists. And he said in his book, Surprised by Joy, he said, a young atheist can't be too careful the books that they read. It's because God loves us enough to call our bluffs. So God comes to us through our walls of doubt, sometimes gently, sometimes suddenly. He calls our bluff. He woos us to himself. And the arguments that we have, all those arguments, they start to fade away and deteriorate when they are faced with persevering love. One of my professors, when I was going to school in Austin, Texas, he as a student, he talked about an experience he had as a student attending UT Austin. Uh, and he went to this conference. There was a big movement in the, uh, this has gone back, this goes back to Nietzsche and other things, but this whole big movement in the 60s and 70s was this whole God is dead movement. There is no God. And there's a lot of things that falls under this God is dead movement. Basically, the common thread of the argument is that belief in God is impossible or meaningless in the modern world, and that fulfillment is to be found in secular life alone. Secular life is all we got. The rest, it's all meaningless. That was kind of the, the gist of what they were saying. And so he goes as a young student, full of doubts, to this conference. And he's with another student, and one student says to him, well, I guess they've explained why there is no God and there can't be a God, to which this uh, other student, who later became a Bible professor and a teacher of ethics, to which he exp expressed, well, not quite. I get all the arguments. They say all this, that God is dead, but they, they have one more question to answer. They still have not explained my mother. 
persistent faith. Unapologetic faith. Constant faith in practice. The steadfast faith of his mother carried this young doubting student through a season of doubt. And later he became a teacher to all of these others, me included. Sometimes God comes to us through annoyingly persistent and unyielding, the unyielding faith of people we love. The people who know God is real and are not threatened by our doubts. See, I have a mom that is like this. I have a sister who is like this. The stupidity that I got into as a teenager. She just didn't. I had to take a pretty windy path to end up where I am. By God's grace, He will use our windy paths. Some people don't need that, and it's as unique as the person, and they get to go straight on. I, I married a woman who was like this. My wife is a rule keeper, if you don't know that. And if, if, she, if there's a, a rule that is there, and she, will, she does not want to break any rules ever, I'm just like, this is kind of a general guideline as far as I understand, and, and how we end up together, hey, God is good. So a lot of times, faith comes to us gently through other people. Faith comes to us gently through circumstances. Faith comes to us when we are able to be honest about our doubts and express them and, and have the courage to seek answers, even though we think, you know what, maybe there is not an answer to this. God meets us in those places. But now he does something way more dramatic with Thomas. And this is the way he comes to us too sometimes. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Why does he have to announce peace at this point? It's because he just Star Trek beamed right into their midst behind their locked doors. I don't know the way he, he did that. I, I, if, you see, if you know our church secretary here, Denise, have you ever seen her face when she realizes that someone is there who she wasn't expecting to be there? <gasps> so I'm in my office. I'm trying to study. I got books out and everything like that. Every once in a while, I'll hear a scream or something like, Jiminy Christmas, Roy! Roy is really good at scaring Denise. He doesn't even try. That's what's... <laughs> But that's why Jesus announces peace, because he gets where he's not supposed to get to. He's just there. And it's... And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. 
It all becomes clear in a moment. It's not wrong to read this text as a rebuke of Thomas. But on another level, because of love, Jesus is giving Thomas exactly what Thomas needs. He's giving Thomas exactly what Thomas needs in order to believe in Jesus. Jesus responds to Thomas's need and his cry, even though it comes from Thomas's doubt and lack of trust. Then Jesus says these curious words. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have not believed. Jesus is doing something special to accommodate Thomas's refusal to believe in him. But he gets in Thomas's face, so to speak, and presents his wounds. At that point, Thomas really doesn't have a, much of a choice whether to believe or not. All ability to doubt is pretty much shattered by the evidence right in front of them. And we think we would like God to be a little bit more proactive in our lives like that, wouldn't we? I long to be able to see Jesus that way. And as physically manifest in my presence, to see his wounds with my own eyes, other than the eyes of my imagination, of what it will be like, I meet Jesus in His Word. I meet Jesus in my dreams sometimes. I meet Jesus through other people, but I long for the day when I get to see Him in a physical manifestation with my own eyes. I long for that. And we think, why doesn't God reveal Himself more often in ways like that? God, I just wish You would clear Your throat once in a while. <clears throat> to let me know you're there. And when we feel that way, a lot of times we don't recognize and we don't listen to and we aren't thankful for the simple little ways that God comes to us. Because God comes to us gently. He comes to us humbly. Now in John 20, 29, Jesus describes believing without yet seeing as a state of blessedness. A state of true blessedness. Seeing Jesus is a responsibility for us. When you see Jesus like this, you can't make excuses. And yet we still do. We try to run from the responsibility of knowing Jesus is Lord. Because if, you, if I know without a doubt that Jesus is Lord, then I know without a doubt that Calvin is not Lord. And the problem is, I want Calvin to be Lord. All my time is my own. All my money, I've earned this. It's mine. Jesus Christ manifests, exposes all of my selfishness and all of my hypocrisy. And like Thomas, we end up kind of naked in the spotlight, so to speak.
But sometimes people still refuse to believe, even when evidence is clear. And that's, that's how you know that there's a bigger story behind doubt as well. In chapter 15, we saw this. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. And then there's this whole interesting dialogue in Luke 16, 19 through 31, where Jesus shares, shares a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And so Lazarus is in agony. He got his comfort on earth. He goes, he's in agony. And then this end little dialogue, he's like, I've got five brothers. Go send Lazarus to tell them. And then Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That's the stubbornness that we bring sometimes. And sometimes it takes a little sudden appearance of Jesus uh, in, a, in a more radical way to break through some of that. Sometimes people refuse to believe otherwise. That's the dark side of doubt as well. So have you heard about this group called the Flat Earth Society? Yeah. So that, I thought, is this a real thing? Is this... There are people who just argue about this for hours and days and days and days because they enjoy arguments. And they don't really care about this or other. But there are people that really believe that we are living on a flat earth and all of the things that our, our, our science is telling us, it's all a conspiracy theory. And that's the way we feel like... I can, I can have this kind of doubt. I can do whatever I want with this. It's... <laughs> There's a refusal to believe that at some point it loses touch with reality and it's no longer rational. The way God reveals himself to Thomas in, is spectacular and it's overwhelming. For a few of us, I think we've had these life experiences where indeed God comes to us that way, but for most of us, the way God reveals himself to us, it's way more mundane. It's, it's way gentler. See, God does not, he, he, he treats us uniquely, first of all. And then also, free will is really important to the Lord. He gives you the keys to your own heart. You can't keep them out entirely but he finds ways to get in. He woos us and draws, draws us to him because he loves us. And I think that is what Jesus calls blessed in the text that we just read. Blessed are the people who do not see him and feel him and touch him firsthand and yet still believe. That would include me. When people hear that our family were missionaries in East Africa, they love, people love missionary stories. Uh, they always want to hear the stories about amazing, miraculous things, mysterious things that I got to see and experience just by being among people of simple and deep and profound faith. I got to witness amazing things, things that I have never seen here in the United States. I think they take place here in the United States. I've just never seen them here, the, the things that I saw there. So healings... 
of uh, things and situations so instantaneous you, you doubt whether or not you saw correctly in the first place. How is this person here from when I saw them last night? How, what, it, possessions, exorcisms, the presence of evil and darkness that is so thick that you can feel it when you walk into the situation. It's like a cloud that you're passing into. Well, I've, over time, I've kind of learned to hold some of my own experiences a little more lightly. These are things that I experienced that I can't fully explain even. They were the exception to the norm of day-to-day -day life and work as a church planting missionary for 14 years in Africa. But over time, I realized, you know, that as a culture and as people, we have a real bias as well toward the sensational. We all love and want the God of fireworks. We think we do. We all love the idea, like the uh, disciples of Jesus, to be able to call down fire from heaven to take care of these troublemakers. And this can be a problem for us a lot of times because the way that the Lord approaches us, it's so quietly, so gently. Jesus gives Thomas the message Thomas needed. And it wasn't through a fancy sermon or words or anything like that. It was by presenting his wounds to him. Jesus made his wounds available to Thomas as a means for Thomas's healing. And then another point in the hidden music of John's gospel, not only do we have a Savior who shows up past our defenses, shows up in places in our hearts where he's not supposed to be able to get to, but we have a Savior who shows us things that we're not supposed to be sharing. He's not supposed to be showing the, these things to us. The marks of where God was wounded by humanity. That kind of God expressing his vulnerability to us by showing us his wounds. Think about this. The resurrection body of Jesus could have been brought back whole and complete. But he chose to keep the wounds. To be able to share them with us. To be able to show them with us. Show them to us. Jesus is recognized by his wounds. You see, all of us, we have wounds in our life. The difference between my wounds and Jesus' wounds is that he didn't deserve his. But I deserve mine a lot of times. Not all of mine, but a lot of them. I have a lot of wounds that are from my own sin. In that sense, they're self-inflicted wounds. And when Jesus shares his wounds with me, it helps me share my wounds with him and healing takes place. Shame is removed. And the place of my greatest brokenness can become a place of my greatest ministry. And although I'm very much still a work in progress, I can become a wounded healer like Jesus Christ because he is willing to share his wounds with me. And another thing, when I make myself vulnerable by sharing my wounds, and not only does it help others, but the shame that I had is further removed when I share it and I receive further healing. So a couple takeaways from today's sermon. 
Do not underestimate Jesus' ability to peer to others and oursel- or ourselves behind the locked doors of our hearts. Trust him for that. Trust that he is doing his work. Your loved ones, your spouse, your children. I'm not saying don't try to keep throwing things over the door. But trust that Jesus is going to get where he needs to get to. Second, sometimes the message people need from us the most is the message of our wounds. In our woundedness, we we can become a source of life for others. I I have that hope as your minister. It's not that I can come and present a good sermon, hopefully, even though the kids have been in here a long time and I maybe should have wrapped up a couple minutes ago. My ability to be your minister and your ability to be a minister of the Lord, somehow I think it's tied a willingness to be able to share your wounds and your true self with other people. If you can share your faith, even though you have doubts, you can share your own broken history that God has come into and redeemed in some way, I think there's great hope for what we can do here together as a body. I think there's great hope for what we can become as the church. So whatever your needs are today, or however these words strike you, think on them a little bit. It's okay to have doubts. Trust the Lord for getting where He needs to be and doing what He needs to do. And then don't be afraid to share your own life story for the blessing of others, just like Jesus shared His own wounds. So let's stand and sing together.